0: Well, go ahead and take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 2. Happy New Year to you all. What a great time. New Year's is a great time to uh, make resolutions. We make resolutions during the new year because we look back on the last year and we try to think through uh, what might we do differently this year. What did we like about last year that we want to continue? What did we not like about last year that we don't want to bring in to 2020? The reality is we often forget things, and so resolutions help us to remember what it is that we're trying to accomplish. We are a forgetful people. Even in the Old Testament, God said that after an amazing accomplishment, He commanded The Israelites, to build a monument stone, to raise an Ebenezer, which is a Hebrew word that means up until now, God's been our help, to remember God has helped us. He has brought us this far, and He won't fail us in the future. Israel needed help in remembering. In the book of James, which we studied a couple semesters ago, James says that we tend to forget when we come to the Word of God, we look at it, we see ourselves, but then We walk away and we don't remember what we look like. We forget. We are a forgetful people. Martin Luther at his church, uh, an old lady asked, what are you going to be preaching on this morning? Martin Luther said, I'm going to preach the gospel. And she said, but we heard the gospel last Sunday. And he said, yes, and you've forgotten it. (laughs) We are forgetful people. Thomas Watson, a Puritan writer, said that God gives us kindnesses, and those kindnesses in Christ we hold on to, but we forget them. They're like flowers, where we look at them, they're beautiful, but as they start to wilt and fade, we just let them go. We forget. We are a forgetful people. And so at the top of 2020, our first Lord's Day in this new year, I want us to stare at Christ. I want to remind us from the scriptures why Jesus is amazing and worthy of our worship. Why he is worthy of our adoration. Even as we sung through the Christmas season, O come let us adore him. Why is he worthy of adoration? Who is he and what has he done that should cause in us such awe and wonder and amazement That we would worship Him, devote our lives to following Him, and treasure Him and cherish Him more than anything in this world. The Bible would say He is better than anything. And we as a people tend to forget that. So let's remember that Jesus is amazing and stand amazed in His presence this morning. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Let's read it together. Ask God's blessing on our time in His Word and then stare at the amazing Christ. When Jesus had come back to Capernaum several days afterwards, it was heard that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door, and he was speaking the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men. Being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there, reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, Jesus said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet and go home. And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Father, we thank you for your word which shows us Jesus. We thank you for your word which will give us the ability to be freshly amazed at Christ to stand in awe of who he is. He is amazing. We want to be like these people who see what he has done and go out glorifying God. Even as we learned this morning in Sunday school, we don't want this to be a lecture where there's more knowledge that's given. We don't want this to be a motivational speech where there's action steps that we walk away doing more things. We want this to be a sermon, a biblical, Christ-centered, Christ-exalting sermon where we walk away worshiping in awe of who Jesus is. What we want, what we are asking for, is impossible apart from your Spirit doing the work in our hearts. So, Holy Spirit, open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. Show us Christ. And may we stand amazed in his presence. We pray in his name for his glory. Amen. Mark chapter 2, verse 1, opens up with Jesus coming back to Capernaum. He had been away because he began his ministry teaching, and then as he was doing miracles, people would grab onto those miracles and say, I want to follow Jesus because I want to see more miracles. He's this amazing magician. And so Jesus, at the end of Mark chapter 1, secluded himself away and didn't want to be near the crowds anymore because he didn't want them following him just because he was doing miracles. We even see that in verse 1. He's in Capernaum several days afterwards. It was heard that he was at home, and many are gathered together so that there's no longer any room, even in the house near the door, and he's speaking the word to them. He's teaching them. He doesn't want to be known primarily as a miracle worker. He wants to be known for the message that he is proclaiming, the message of the gospel. So he comes home. But he can't stay hidden. It's heard that he is at home. And everybody gathers around in this house, verse 2. And there's no room in this house. No air conditioning in this house as well. So you can only imagine how badly this house smelled. No deodorant, no air conditioning, all huddled around Jesus, listening to him teach. Shoulder to shoulder, maybe a very sweaty environment, but you just want to see this man. He's amazing, You want to hear him and you want to see what he's going to do. And so since there's no room near the door, there's no room anywhere there, but specifically Mark tells us that there's no room even near the door. There's no place to to get into this room. So, verse 3, some friends come. We, We find out there's four of them that are holding a paralytic carried on a pallet. And they bring this paralytic to Jesus, obviously to have Jesus heal this man. And as they bring him, the logical step is walk through the door and set this man at the feet of Jesus and let Jesus heal this man. But since there's no access through the door into this room, and since there's nobody, apparently these people are very mean-spirited people. When they see a, a paralyzed man laying on a bed that wants to get into Jesus, they will not turn and make room and open up a pathway for him. So the only logical next step is go up on top of the house, cut a hole in the house, in the roof, and drop the man through. So they get a ladder, they go up on the top of the house, they cut a hole in the roof. Now, roofs back then were not like roofs today, where there's all this uh, tar work and all these different layers. It was practically just some wooden beams with some palm branches on top of it, maybe with a little bit of mud and clay to kind of keep the sun from just shining brightly into the house. And I've, I've heard many people, I've read many commentators that say, so it wasn't that big of a deal. They're just kind of pulling back a, a palm branch to drop this man in. Yeah, but they're still cutting a hole in the roof. Right? What is the owner of this house thinking? This is my house. This is my roof. I don't think I'm ever going to host a church party ever again at my house. Right? What, what, what are we going to do? Maybe after Jesus heals this man, everybody applauds and says, yes, this is awesome. He's healed him. And then as they all leave, maybe this man says, Jesus, can you, can you stick around just one thing? Could you fix that? <laughs> they carry this man. What amazing friends to carry this man to Jesus. Verse 4, being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. When they had dug this opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. They want this man to be healed. I wonder how long it took them to figure out where Jesus was. If somebody has their ear to the palm branches, he's over here, and they kind of lift it. Nope, he's over there. Go over there. He's over here. Maybe they tried dropping him in one time. Nope, we're not even close. Go back up, move over. Then they drop him down, and finally, with all this commotion happening, they drop this man right in front of Jesus. Now, this would stop everything that's happening. Jesus' sermon is done at this point. Whatever he was about to say, we're moving on to a different point because there's a hole in the roof and a man just got dropped through it. And the man obviously wants to be healed. And the friends want this man to be healed. And Jesus takes notice of the man in verse 5. He says to the man, the paralytic, my Bible says, son, it's a term of endearment, friend, child, my friend, my dear friend. This man's heart must be racing at this point. I didn't think I was going to be able to see Jesus. The door was jammed. There were people there. They weren't letting me through. And my friends decided to go up to the top of the house, drop me through the roof. I didn't think that was going to work, but it worked. And here I am in front of Jesus. And Jesus is looking at me, and he's speaking to me. And he says, son, my friend, my child. And then he says these words, your sins are forgiven. Son, your sins are forgiven. What must this man have thought and said and done when he hears Jesus say those words? Uh, A long time ago I was in a VBS skit and we acted out this section of the Gospel of Mark. And in the white space of Scripture, with sanctified imagination, I, I just thought, this man is wanting to meet Jesus and see Jesus because he wants to be healed. And when Jesus takes notice of him and he says, My son, my child, my friend, he must be thinking, this is it. He's going to heal me. And then Jesus says, Your sins are forgiven. And this man, in my sanctified imagination, he goes, Yippee! And he tries to kind of move over on his pallet and starts to try and get up. And then he goes, Hey, that's, that's not why I came here. Thanks, but no Thanks. What I wanted was healing. I mean, imagine the friends up on the roof as they see Jesus take notice of their friend and they go, this is it, the plan's working. He goes, my son, they go, yes, and your sins are forgiven. Hooray, wait, no, 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 that's the wrong thing. It's, it's be healed. It's get up and walk. And this brings us to our, our, our first understanding in this passage of why Jesus is amazing. I want to show you three ways in which we should stand amazed in his presence, three ways in which he shows himself to be wonderful, amazing, three reasons why we should glorify God for sending his son Jesus. And the first way that Jesus proves himself to be amazing is here in this verse. Number one, Jesus meets our deepest needs. He meets our deepest needs. This man and his friends want the need of walking to be met. I want to be able to walk again. But Jesus doesn't meet that need right now. He goes deeper to the need of having this man's sins forgiven. By coming to Jesus, only asking for his body to be healed, this man wasn't going deep enough to the deepest problem. And if we're honest, I think many of us do the exact same thing. Maybe it's not being paralyzed, Maybe it's a physical issue. Maybe it's not even a physical issue. But we say, God, if you could just fix this one thing about my family or one thing about my friends, this one relationship that just isn't working right. Maybe just give me a spouse. Maybe just give me a child. If you could fix this one thing, the right job, the right amount of money, then I would be happy. Then I'd be okay. Then I would be, quote-unquote, fixed. The problems would be solved and I'd be happy. But Jesus is showing us that the problem that we all have is much deeper than we realize. The problem is much more difficult to deal with than we realize. In fact, he alone is the one that can deal with it. He alone, no one else can deal with the real problem that we all have. I've heard it put this way before. The worst practical joke that God could play on you is granting you your deepest desire. Now, obviously, God does not play practical jokes, but the point is, we think that our need, our deepest need is here, and if God were to say, sure, I'll grant that wish, I'll grant that need, he would be failing to meet the deepest need that you and I have. Just think about this man. Sure, it would be awesome to be able to walk again. That would be great. But one day, the euphoria of that would wear off. I remember when I was in high school, I broke my thumb. I remember thinking, I have not thank God enough for the use of my thumb. When it was in a cast, you realize how many things you use this amazing digit for, right? This is just awesome. I remember one of the worst experiences was trying to shower and shampoo my hair uh, when I have a cast, right? You put the cast up because you don't want it to get wet. You don't have the ability to Put the the shampoo around so you just kind of have to move your head around. You're not able to use your hand. It's just this terrible experience. And I remember thinking, God, please heal my thumb. And when this cast comes off, every morning I'm going to wake up and thank you for my thumb. I'm going to remember, never going to take my thumb for granted ever again. I woke up this morning, and my first thought was, wow, it's early and uh, nowhere in the rest of my morning was a thought, man, I'm so thankful that God gave me the use of my thumb. I, it's, the euphoria has worn off. So what Jesus is doing here is he says, I know the greatest need you have, and I'm not going to meet your greatest wish. I'm going to dive deeper into your soul to meet the greatest need you have. You don't even really know that need, and I'm going to meet it. I'm not going to play a practical joke on you. I'm not going to heal your body and have you think that you've gotten your deepest wish. I'm going to go much deeper than you've ever dared to imagine. This is perfectly illustrated in C.S. Lewis's book, The Voyage of the Dawn Shredder. There's a character in that book named Eustace, and he just hates everyone, can't seem to get along with anyone. And at this point in the story, he's on an island and he finds all of this money, all the uh, treasures, all sorts of gold and diamonds and rubies. And, and he decides, I'm going to take all of this and uh, this will be able to pay all of these people back. I'm going to get them back for all of the mean things that they've done to me. I'll use all my wealth and riches to be mean towards them. And He falls asleep in a cave. And when he wakes up, because of his dragonish heart, He wakes up as a dragon. And he's in despair because he thinks, I'm never going to be able to leave this island. I'm never going to be able to get off the island. He tries flying. It's not working too well. And so he thinks, well, I guess I just need to rip off the dragon's skin that I have. He tries to rip it off, but he cannot shed the skin. He keeps on gnawing at it, clawing at it like a lion, but it doesn't work. Finally, Aslan shows up. Christ figure. And he tells Eustace, you have to go much deeper than that if you want to take this skin off. Eustace says these words, I was afraid of Aslan's claws, I can tell you that. But I was pretty near desperate now. The first tear that he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I had done to myself the other three times before, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than all the others had been, Then he caught a hold of me and he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. And then I saw that I'd turned into a boy again. For many of us reading that passage by C.S. Lewis, we read it with tears in our eyes because we know that is our story. We thought we could fix ourselves. We thought we could go deep enough. We thought we knew what our deepest need was, and we tried to get after it, and it wouldn't work. Nothing we did would work. And then Jesus shows up and he says, oh, I know your greatest need, and I alone can fix the problem. And he does with this man. Son, your sins are forgiven. The first reason that we can stand amazed at our Savior, both now and on into this year and into eternity, is that we can trust he's going to be meeting our greatest needs, our deepest needs. He did it at the cross by forgiving us of our sins, paying the penalty for our sin. And therefore, if he's done the hardest thing, we know he's going to keep on meeting our needs, our deepest needs. So if you feel like God's not meeting the need that you think is your deepest need, then you're probably not looking deep enough. And we know that Jesus will go deeper to meet our greatest need. The second reason why we can stand amazed is still in verse 5. Why we can stand amazed at Jesus is because he offers, secondly, forgiveness apart from works. He offers forgiveness apart from works. He just tells this man, your sins are forgiven. This is going to tick off the Pharisees because in a Pharisaical mindset, you have to do things to make yourself right before God. You have to cleanse yourself. You can never have a clean slate given to you. And yet that's exactly what Jesus does. He said, your sins are forgiven. I'm going to give you a clean slate now. He'd never told this man, if you do these things, if you say these things, if you act this way, then I'll grant you forgiveness. No, he just said, son, your sins are forgiven. He knew his greatest need. He met the greatest need. And he does it apart from this man working at all. The Pharisees are going to be angry at that. Verse 6. Some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak that way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? They get it. They get how weird Jesus' statement is. Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. And they say, you can't say that because you're claiming to be God. How do they make that deduction? What are they saying? What are they seeing about this situation? Well, they're seeing... A perfect formula of forgiveness. If uh, Buddy's hanging out with Alec, and, and I see Alec punch Buddy, and uh, I go up to Alec and I say, it's okay, Alec, I forgive you. Buddy would say, sorry, but that's not your place to do that. right? He didn't punch you, he punched me. Jesus says, I can forgive your sins. And the Pharisees say, no, his sin is against God. You can't just step in and go, I'll forgive it. So they know exactly what Jesus is saying. Oh, I can forgive it because you sinned against me. You have sinned against me, and therefore I can forgive you. And Jesus knows what they're thinking. Immediately, verse 8, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your heart? Then he says this, Which is easier to say to the paralytic? your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Which is easier to say? This is a great question. Which is easier simply to say? Well, it's easier to say you're forgiven of your sins, because there's no way to verify if that's happened. It's not like this man lying on the ground when Jesus said, your sins are forgiven, just like starts glowing, You know, it's not like, oh, it's obvious, like a halo comes down over his head. Well, it's clear that something happened. He said, your sins are forgiven, and we don't see any evidence externally of that happening. So it's much easier to simply say, your sins are forgiven. If you say, get up, take up your pallet, and walk, and that man does not do that, then you have been proven to be a fraud. So Jesus says, which is easier to say? It's much easier to just simply say, you're forgiven. So Jesus then says, I'll do, I'll say and do the harder thing here to validate what I've already spoken. Your sins are forgiven. That's an easy thing to say. So, verse 10, so that you may know without a shadow of a doubt that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So that you may know that I am who you claim, who I'm claiming to be. I am who you think that I am, all right? You're mad because I'm blaspheming, claiming to be God, And I'm telling you, that's the truth. I am God. I'm not blaspheming. I am who I claim to be. So that you may know. You may know. When I share the gospel with people, there are times when I ask them if they follow Jesus, if they love Him, if they treasure Him more than anything in the world, if they love the Word of God and they love the teachings of Christ. And they say, yes, absolutely. I love... The teachings of Christ, I follow him. And I said, Do you believe that Jesus is God? And they said, No, 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 he, he, he's not God. He, um, he never really taught that he was God. He never claimed to be God. He's just a good teacher. He's a moral teacher. If anybody ever says those things to you with grace and kindness and compassion, you can ask, Can I show you a couple places where he does claim to be God? Mark chapter 2 is one of those. He is claiming to be God. If he hears or knows that the Pharisees are saying this man's blaspheming and Jesus isn't God, he would have said, oh, wait, 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 time out. I'm so sorry I gave you the wrong impression. I'm not God. But instead he says, oh, no, no, I'm not blaspheming. I am God. So that you may know that I have the authority to forgive sins. Only God has authority to forgive sins. I have authority to forgive sins. Therefore, logically, I am God. You can go here to show people, no, he's claiming to be God. So that you may know, I'm going to say to this man, get up, verse 11, pick up your pallet and go home. And the man's going to do it, verse 12. He gets up and immediately picks up his pallet, went out in the sight of everyone so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. Jesus doesn't just deal with the problem physically that this man has. He deals with the effects of the problem. This man's lying on a pallet who knows how long he's been paralyzed for. And Jesus says, get up. And he gets up. That's miraculous in and of itself. But then the man just walks home. No physical therapy needed. No years of stretching and regaining strength. I mean, his muscles have atrophied and in a moment they're back to normal. And this is the pattern that we see all throughout the gospel of Mark. When Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law in in chapter 1, he heals uh, her, and then it says that she gets up and starts serving meals, starts cooking. Jesus takes care of the problem, the sickness, and the effects of the problem as well. She's not feeling groggy for weeks afterwards. No, instantly healed, and she starts cooking. When Jesus heals Jairus' daughter in Mark chapter 5, she's dead, and he says, come alive. Wake up. She wakes up. So that in and of itself is amazing. But I don't know what it would be like to wake up from death. I don't know how you feel. Uh, I'm guessing that it's worse than I feel when I wake up from a nap. And I feel very groggy. Like, hang on, I need to get my bearings. I don't know where I am or what I'm doing. She's dead and she comes to life. And then she instantly starts running around in the house like a little 12-year-old girl would do. Jesus takes care of the problem and the effects of the problem as well. And here he does the same thing. He takes care of the physical problem and the effects of the problem are instantly gone. And this is the third reason why we should stand amazed in the presence of Christ at who he is and what he's done. Not only does he meet our deepest need, not only does he offer forgiveness apart from our working, he justifies us apart from our working. But number three, and finally, he validates all the claims that he makes. He backs them all up. He validates all the claims that he makes. He says, I am God, and then he backs it up. I can forgive sins, and then he says, let me prove it to you. He validates all the claims that he makes. And he does it in such a way that in the end of verse 12, everyone goes out amazed. out of their mind. They're blown away at what they've just seen. And they're glorifying God. saying we've never seen anything like this. This man speaks differently than anyone we've ever seen. This man acts differently than anyone we've ever seen. He has authority on earth, not only to teach in a different way than we've ever heard, but also to heal, to cast out demons. This man is amazing. He validates the claims that he's making. This, by the way, helps us understand what miracles are for in the Bible. A lot of people terminate on byproducts of the miracles. They terminate on secondary reasons why Jesus performs miracles. Jesus is definitely teaching and preaching as he's doing miracles. He's giving us object lessons and he's making analogies. He's pointing us to greater realities. He's giving us signs and wonders about who he is. He's loving the lost. He's helping the hurting. He's reversing the curse. He's shining forth his glory. He's doing all of these things. But the primary reason why any miracle is ever done in the Bible is to validate a claim that's been made. Go all the way back to the Old Testament. God tells Moses in the book of Exodus to go to Pharaoh and to say, let my people go. Moses says, "Uh, I don't think Pharaoh's going to like that. And so when I go and I show up, who should I say has sent me? Because I'm sure he's going to ask, who has sent you? And God says, tell him, I am has sent you. I am that I am. Yahweh has sent you. And he says, that's great, thank you, but I don't think he's still going to believe me. I don't think that he's going to understand what I'm saying, and I don't think he's going to let my people go. So how can I prove that it's you sending? Remember, God offers him these miraculous signs. Put your hand in your coat, pull it out, it becomes leprosy, put it back in, pull it out, it's clean. Throw your, the staff down, it'll become a snake. Pick it back up, it'll turn back into a staff. That's all to show the Pharaoh, the claims that I'm making are true. I'm not making this up. I'm validating what I'm saying. Jesus does the same thing. Paul did the same thing. When Paul made claims, he would validate them. The apostles would validate the claims that they were making about the gospel and about who Jesus was through the miracles that they would perform. So too here, Jesus is saying, "I his, his claim is staggering. I am God. I am a human and I am God at the exact same time and let me prove it to you. Let me prove it to you right now. And so he does. He validates every claim that he's ever made. So, Jesus says, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven. So let me validate it by doing something. The irony of that statement is, which is really easier to do? The irony of that statement is, it's much easier to simply heal a man for Jesus. Because in order to forgive this man, Jesus is going to have to go to the cross. He's going to have to die on a cross. He's going to have to bear this man's sins and the penalty for this man's sins on the cross so that he can in turn offer this man forgiveness. It's a beautiful irony what Jesus is saying. Which is easier to say? Well, it's much easier to say your sins are forgiven. Which is easier to do? Well, it's a much harder thing to forgive sins. Only God can. And so Jesus says, let me validate the claims that I'm making about who I am and about what I can do by offering miraculous healing physically here and one day offering miraculous healing spiritually at the cross. Why should we stand amazed in the presence of Christ? Why in this new year should we be freshly amazed and adoring and worshiping our Savior, standing in awe of who He is? Because number one, He meets our deepest needs. He has already met your deepest need. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you know that your greatest need is not something physical, it's not something uh, relational uh, with other family members or with friends, it's not your job, it's not your work, it's not the amount of money you make, it's none of those things. Your deepest need, my deepest need, is that the penalty of my sin be paid by the work of another. My deepest need is to be reconciled to God as a friend and no longer to have him be my judge. As we heard this morning in Sunday school, my deepest need is not just a motivational speech that will help me to do better things, to try harder, to work at religion. My deepest need is that somebody else would do the work for me because I can't do the work myself. Look back on 2019, and you see so many failures. I see so many ways I failed so many different people. Sin just seems to reign in 2019. And you look at so many sermons, if I can use that word, so many people that preach, you know what, just try harder in 2020. Just work harder. Just be better. Make some resolutions to just be a better person. Some people might say, okay, I'll do that because I'm awesome. I can do that. And in pride, they think I can work harder. Some people might say, I can't do that. And in despair, they are hopeless. And that's where the beauty of the gospel comes right in the middle to say that, oh, you are far worse than you ever imagined, but you are far more loved than you ever dared to dream. And there is one who has done the work in your place, on your behalf. Not because of anything you've done, but because of his great love for you. There is somebody who has done the work. You don't have to be hopeless. You're not hopeless. Because the work of another can be placed into your account. That's why we celebrate Christmas. Jesus shows up in the incarnation. He becomes a little baby so that he can live a human life. And he does so without ever sinning once. In thought, in attitude, in action, he never sins so that he earns, he wins for us a perfect record of righteousness, a 100% in living life. And then at the cross, he says, here, I'm going to give you that perfect record of righteousness. I'm offering you a perfect record, as if you've never sinned, because I never sinned, so I'm going to give you my sinlessness. And I'll take from you your sinfulness. We we don't have a, a B minus in the category of sinfulness. We don't have a, a D plus. We have an F minus if that's a thing. We have worse than failing. Even our good works Isaiah says are as filthy rags before him. We cannot earn a good standing. We cannot let our good works outweigh our bad works. That's not the way it works. That's the way every religion says that it works. Every religion is wrong. Every religion says that God is far off somewhere and and he gives us some rules and says, come to me this way. And he gives us step-by-step program. This is how to get to me. And he just waits for us to show up. We have to do the work to get up that mountain to climb to him. But Jesus says, I'm going to go get you. I'm going to go do the work that you need to do to get to me. I'm going to do it for you. And then I'm going to put you on my back and I'm going to walk back up and have a perfect, reconciled relationship with the God of the universe. At the cross, Jesus takes our sinfulness and God the Father treats Jesus as if he had lived our sinful lives, penalizes him in our place, punishes him in our place so that you and I could be treated as if we lived Jesus' perfection. That's amazing grace. That's favor that's been given that's undeserved. We have not merited that love. Jesus has met our deepest needs. While we were enemies, Paul says in the book of Romans, Christ died for us. We didn't even know it was in need. And he met it. Jesus offers us forgiveness apart from works. He offers us forgiveness. This is the beautiful doctrine of justification that Jesus does all the work so that we can just rest in his finished work. That's why on the cross he cries out, it is finished. I've accomplished it in full, paid in full. Nothing left for you and I to do. We hear that question Uh, often in evangelism, if you were to die tonight and stand before God and God were to say, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? Most people would say, I tried hard, I was a good person, I didn't do these awful things. My answer to that question is, you should not let me into heaven. I I shouldn't be there. I have done nothing to deserve or earn getting into heaven. All I've done on earth is deserve hell. But you said in your word that you sent Jesus. And he did work in my place, on my behalf, only because of his amazing love and to show forth his glory. And with as much of my heart as I'm able to, I've clung to him. I'm clinging to him. So why should I get into heaven? It's because of the work of Jesus Christ, not me. I have nothing to show God to say, here's why. I just have faith in Christ. I cling to Christ. I trust in Him. And He's the reason why I can go to heaven. He offers forgiveness. He justifies us apart from our works. We should stand amazed at Christ because He meets our deepest needs. He offers forgiveness apart from us working. But we, there is a work that needs to be done in order to be forgiven. And Jesus says, I'll do the work for you. And finally, he validates the claims that he has made. He validates them here in Mark chapter 2. He validates them at the cross. When he said, nobody takes my life from me, I lay it down. And so he gives up his spirit at the end. It's finished. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then finally, his entire redemptive work is validated three days later at the resurrection. This is in the very beginning of Romans that Jesus is proven to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection validates every claim that he ever made so that every single promise that Christ has ever made, every single claim that he's ever made about himself or about you and me is a yes and amen in his finished work. So as we enter into 2020, a new year, new beginnings, new mercies every single day, My prayer is that we would have a fresh amazement at Christ, who would see him making provision to meet our deepest need, that he alone does the work to justify us and forgive us, and we can live in that freedom of forgiveness. Like the prodigal son, you remember, far away in a distant country, comes to his senses finally. And says, I'm going to go back to my father. I'm going to say three things. Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. Number two, I'm not worthy to be called your son. So number three, make me as one of your hired servants. Let me be a slave in your house. I'll work for you. And when he goes back home, his father's already searching for him and runs, hugs him, even filth and all, embraces him, kisses him, puts a robe around him to cover his shame, to cover his guilt, to cover his sin. And then that prodigal son says father i've sinned against heaven and in your sight and i'm not worthy to be called your son but before he can say the third thing let me work for you the father cuts in and says you are my son here's a signet ring of authority you're back in the family jesus did all of the work he doesn't even allow us to participate in the work of salvation he says let me do it all for you And that is a truly unbelievable claim. What wondrous love is this, oh my soul? And so he validates it. It's too amazing to believe, and he goes, Yeah, let me prove it's true. I'll die and I'll rise from the dead to prove once and for all it's true. This is why we celebrate communion. Brothers and sisters, we celebrate communion to remind ourselves it's true. You are forgiven. His mercy is more. We sang it earlier. His mercy is more than every sin you've ever committed. So as we enter into this new year, we're going we're to sing and then we'll participate in communion together. As we enter into this new year, what a perfect time to participate in communion. To remember and be freshly amazed at the work of Christ. That you have been forgiven by His work. His body broken for you. His blood poured out for you. His love for you has forgiven you. Father, we thank you so much for your amazing kindness in sending Jesus. We were hopeless apart from His work. Apart from Him doing the work, we would have no hope. And therefore, we are blown away by him doing what we could never do. Thank you, Jesus. We want to adore you, and we want to respond the way that that these people responded, amazed. But we don't want that amazement to, to die off. We want every time we gather together to be freshly amazed by Christ. And that's why we sing, to remind each other of the amazing Nature of Jesus' person and work. So, Father, as we prepare our hearts now to participate in communion and enjoy fellowship with Christ, I pray that you would encourage our hearts, that the Son has set us free, and we are free indeed.